I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. I'm with my friend Charlie Deist, who is not only the technician, he also keeps me on track with occasional questions and timely summarizations. This is episode nine, why men cultivate their masculinity when they grow flowers. The subtitle for this episode, I want to say up front, could have been in which David and Charlie almost come to fisticuffs over the question of chicken coops. But uh, just so that we don't get too heated right away, I want to start with your family history of gardening. <laughs> Tell us, uh, David, what you know about your grandfather and your great-grandfather as it relates to gardening. Well, yes. So um, there is a family history here. I, I uh, the, the family law, if I put it like that, L-O-R-E, uh, I think I've heard that my great-grandfather uh, or maybe it was his father, I can't remember precisely, but somewhere down the line of my mother's family, um, I had a, a, a relative who was the head gardener of the, uh, of the Duke of Northumberland at his house in Annick in, in Northumberland. Um, certainly both my parents were very interested in gardening and my mother's father, my grandfather, uh, was a very strong gardener as well and wrote a gardening column. Uh, my mum and dad uh, were so uh, devoted to gardening they started to buy little pieces of adjoining plots of land from the house. This was just in suburban town um, and gradually expanded it um, and they used to open it up to the public three times a year. Um, it was published in, there's a little directory that they produce in Britain uh, the National Garden Scheme of just private gardens, and these aren't necessarily grand houses; they're just many just ordinary suburban houses with small gardens. Uh, but they, people, someone comes and looks at them, and they think it's worthy something of note uh, that th you can appear in this directory, and they list the days when the public can come in. So, we used to have open our garden up to the public, and we used to get six or seven hundred people coming in and we'd charge, I think it was two pounds to come in and everything went to asthma research or something like that. Mm. Um, but uh, for example, uh, there was no chore in our house for mowing the lawn. Uh, my dad wouldn't let, let us mow the lawn because he didn't trust us to do it neatly enough. And he had the roller and everything was, you know, had the, the lines and everything. Um, but I did learn about principles of garden design. I should know a lot more than I do, and I wish, in a way, I'd make, made more efforts to uh, learn directly about what they were doing. Um, I saw the gardens they designed. I, I understood the principles they had. One thing I could do, though, was uh, say the Latin name for Japanese maple. I remember when I was 11, my dad taught it to me. It was uh, this red maple, was Acer Parmartum Dissectum Apopiperium. And um, I remember I was getting a, a lift somewhere, a ride in a car, and the, uh, we were going on a sort of outing not long afterwards. And the guy who, the, it was a friend's dad, 
was tending his garden and he had one of these Japanese maples there. So I just, I don't know what impression it made upon him, but as an 11 year old, I went up to him and said, Oh, is that Acer Palmatum dissectum apoperium? <laughs> he looked a bit surprised. Um, actually, he knew what it was. It wasn't, it was a different variety, ah. but he knew precisely what it was. Um, but yeah, so I have a, a love of gardening and uh, the beauty of gardens cultivated for flowers and. Um, I'm interested in garden design um, and historically in Britain uh, there is a connection between art and gardens and um, design and for example the English cottage garden which is the, the, the style of gardening that you see predominantly in the small English gardens and also uh, seems to have been adopted here in Berkeley actually we have a lot of suburban gardens growing Mediterranean plants different sorts of plants but uh, nevertheless the same sort of design um, the, the the lady who'd uh, actually established that uh, lived and worked in the, the sort of late Victorian Edwardian um, early 20th century period and her name was Gertrude Jekyll I, I I don't know if it's Jekyll or Jekyll, uh, J-E-C-K-E-L-L. -L. And she went into gardening because she went to art school and couldn't, uh, her, there was something wrong with her eyesight so that she couldn't actually be an artist, but she could um, design gardens. And she developed a whole system of, of design which really became, dominated the English garden. Um, Interestingly, she's the great, is the granddaughter, I think, of Dr. Jekyll, uh, that Robbie Louis Stevenson wrote about in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, mm. And Dr. Jekyll was the good one, if you remember, and he, he, he modelled the, the character on a good doctor that he knew. So you have a blog post up on the way of beauty about uh, the same topic, and you open up with reference to a... Uh, reading from the Office of Readings on the Feast of the Visitation uh, from the, the Song of Songs. What do, we, what do we learn about gardens from reading scripture? Okay, so th as, as you mentioned, the, the starting point uh, for the blog post, which, in which I started to put some time ago now, a few of my thoughts on this down, um, is the, the Office of Readings. And I, I, when I'm, I pick something scriptural from the liturgy, I always like to make reference to that, to stress the importance of how the liturgy can instruct us and teach us. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it makes a special impression, I think. So the Office of Readings is one of the offices, one of the, the um, occasions of prayer in the liturgy of the hours what, that has extended scripture readings and readings from the Church Fathers. So this one focused on um, the Song of Songs. And it's a short um, book in the middle of the Bible um, and not really easy. It's clearly, if you just read it, um, a love song. Um, but it's, it's, it's confusing in many ways as to who the voice is. It seems to switch between the man and the woman. Um, without telling us that it's doing so. Um, so it's not, uh, I, I would say that it is helpful to read commentaries on this. But what it is seen as is, at, at one level, 
um, a song of love uh, for Christ by his church. Um, and so that's why it's included. And th there's a lot of what you might, is surprisingly explicit uh, language of, of, in the language of love uh, there as well. This is definitely romantic love. You know, it's, it's not uh, a platonic friendship, if I can call it that. This is romance. This is deep, passionate love. Um, and then there's reference to uh, the, uh, the lady being like a garden enclosed. And um, this is um, seen as an, an allegory for Our Lady. And so you get a, a whole range of art, especially in the medieval period, of uh, the hortus conclusus, I think it is, the enclosed garden. Um, but at the same time, of course, the development of gardening gardens which are enclosed. Mm. Now, the most obvious example of that is the... Uh, is the cloistered garden which you would see before you would go into a, a, a monastic church so you have this you walk around the perimeter and um, you look inwards through um, but very often don't go into the garden itself it is uh, sometimes it's you can't you know as a, you, you see it and only the gardener goes in there um, and so that is at one level seen as Mary. Now, why, why would they place it there? Um, it is, it's a wonderful, quiet moment of contemplation that does prepare us, I think, psychologically for worship in the church. Mm. But this is a, an example of cultivated beauty, be, the nature raised up by man to something um, high and as close to an idealistic form of beauty we can have through the work of man um, as a, someone who cultivates nature. Um, and of course Mary gave uh, Christ his humanity. So uh, th this connection between the spiritual and the material uh, is very important between Christians. That the, All the great heresies are a swing in one direction or another. People either focus on the material and forget the spiritual or they focus on the spiritual and forget the material. Christianity is this perfect balance but in many ways theologically it's on a knife edge. The tendency to want to go mm. off or to one side or another is strong. So the more examples we have that symbolize and impress upon our souls if you like how the material world is uh, speaks of the spiritual and when man works in time and space, he can do so informed by God's inspiration, but also in ways that point to heavenly beauty. Uh, Mary, is an, is, especially, is an example, is seen as someone to contemplate as a person who um, embodies this attitude perfectly. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, her, the example of her life, she gave Christ her humanity. Um, now, the the other example that immediately comes to mind of the garden, of course, is the Garden of Eden. Uh, and so in Genesis, we see that uh, Adam was told to cultivate the, the garden. Um, he had no need to do so for food, as far as I know. Everything just grew naturally. So um, maybe he did, or maybe it was food. But 
um, I think for beauty as well. Um, and then um, when we come, of course, uh, with the fall, that was uh, affected. Man was banished from the Garden of Eden. But through Christ, um, we work to restore um, the, the all of creation. It's part of man's work. And so I believe that cultivation in this life um, is what we can do to raise nature up. And that means farming and gardens as well. Um, but the, doing it for the beauty of it, it I would say, um, is the... The, the Mary as, as, as distinct to the Martha. So mm. both are necessary, both are important, um, but growing for food and sustenance, vital, absolutely vital, but that is the Martha, um, and the contemplative, the higher, is growing it for beauty. Um, and the two are not separated. Farmland can be beautiful, uh, flower gardens and herb gardens can be decorative, and ornamental, as well as providing um, things to eat. I think it is also interesting that Christ, who is the new, is, is likened by the church fathers uh, to the new Adam, uh, is uh, mistaken by another Mary, Mary Magdalene, um, as the gardener. Are you the gardener? Uh, now, my, I, I haven't read this anywhere, but it's, it's always struck me that um, that this might the point that is being made here in in recording this incident uh, in the Gospels is that um, he she thought this because she struck him uh, to make the point that he could be the new Adam um, and uh, in some way she struck him as somebody good and wonderful um, and of course. Uh, Christ said Mary, and she realised that uh, that it, who it was. Um, so uh, clearly, th there is evidence of the the uh, importance of gardening. Uh, a lot of what Christ did. Remember, he went to pray in gardens, uh, the places that are cultivated within the city, as places to go and contemplate the beauty of creation. Um, in a special way. We tend to go now out to the wilderness to do that. Um, but it's interesting that the, the, the mention of the wilderness in, um, in the Bible is where Christ went to meet the devil. It's seen the place where there is no civilization and uh, that's where he confronted him. And the early church fathers uh, went out into the desert uh, mimicking this, such as Anthony Abbott, because they felt this was where the spiritual battle was in the wilderness, uh, where there was no um, effect of man. Um, then finally, the, the one that I'm sure there are many others that others, uh, scripture scholars can think of, but one that comes to mind for me also is the description of the New Jerusalem, uh, the, the, the city in the book of Revelation. Um, so one gathers from this that the Bible is telling us um, that rather like Aristotle, man is meant to live in community, in a, in a polis, in a city. Um, and the great city of the, 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 that we, we will, will be our heavenly home is the New Jerusalem. But within its walls, there are gardens uh, described. 
places of contemplation and cultivation. So it's not a concrete jungle. Um, this is a place of beauty with beautiful buildings that one hopes incorporate the mathematics of beauty. That's what I, I, I envision. Um, the, 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 the buildings are in harmony with uh, the ideals of beauty, but there is also there is uh, there are gardens and plant life and uh, great beauty there as well within the city. Yeah. So to summarize, uh, the garden. This is the it's cultivated really in some ways just for the sake of beauty. The floral garden, for example, it has again to come back to the concept of kind of utility. It doesn't have utility in the strict sense, but maybe it has a much broader role to play in uh, in terms of situating humanity within uh, or kind of giving it more of a, a role that, that goes beyond just, um, you know, just kind of animal appetites. And yes, and... Uh, goes uh, beyond surviving into thriving or something uh, Yes, like uh, flourishing, flourishing or something. Flourishing. Uh, oh, from the rhyme word is. of the flower, yeah. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, and so... From nourishing to flourishing. Nourishing to flourishing, very good, okay. Um, the, so, I, yes, I, I would agree. And remember that the running theme of the Way of Beauty podcasts um, is that beauty does have a utility, but it's a broader, um, as you pointed out, it's a broader, and I would say deeper and richer idea, one mm. that takes into account the soul as well as the body um, and draws us to God. And we say, well, there is a purpose to that. There's, it has a utility. And so this, this is an important one, uh, important uh, utility, aspect of utility. Why do you think that there's so much emphasis on the wilderness today as the, the place where, where man can go to kind of be fully himself or to discover himself? Um, yes, that's, that's interesting. I, uh, my feeling is that uh, there's, a, there's a few reasons for this. One is it's part of the, the modern secular worldview that man is not seen as natural in the way that... Um, other aspects of what we would call creation are. So the Christian view sees man as part of creation, uh, one who, uh, when he uh, works in, such, in harmony with God's will, if you like, um, can also work in harmony with nature and raise it up. Mm. Um, the, the secular worldview seems to view man as something unnatural, um, or if natural, only natural when um, the primitive man, it goes right the way back to this romantic view of man that emerged in the 18th century, where the perfect man is the primitive man mm. who, who um, runs through the jungle or whatever it is and lives in harmony with nature. Um, and the problem, civilization corrupts him. Mm. Um, and so therefore the culture of civilization is in conflict with the natural world. Um, so therefore, when we see the modern world encroaching upon uh, the pristine beauty, as it's seen, of the wilderness, um, that is problematic. Uh, the other thing is, I think also, that especially in the new world, um, a lot of the evidence of the activity of man is that he does, doesn't work in harmony with it. So, so much of the expansion 
within, I'm thinking of Australia, the US, um, particularly, and New Zealand, where I've seen it, that uh, where you see man uh, encroaching upon nature, farming it, mm. um, it doesn't produce uh, beauty that matches, for example, rural France or rural England. Um, and that's because society has changed. The, the, the methods of farming are no longer informed by uh, this uh, world view. Um, and uh, you talk about factory farming. The, right. the, the, ver the very phrase indicates that it's not seen as something natural. Now, my belief is that um, it is possible to be highly productive with farming, um, but uh, there are problems with the way that it's the, the economics of it today, the way that farmers are motivated, and that's a, a discussion for another time. But the evidence is that he that he does not work in harmony with it, that, that, and so people tend to think that, um, that where man goes, he destroys nature. Uh, the other thing is that it, when you look at the modern cities. Um, they seem to fight against mm -hmm. the natural world. Modern buildings don't seem uh, in harmony with it, seem to sit easily within a rural environment. Um, and it's, it's very interesting that even those who at, the, at one breath might um, say that we need, you know, propose modern architecture will flee to the country, will mm -hmm. assume that you have to escape the city in order to uh, relax, yeah, um, and I would say it needn't necessarily be so. Now there are some uh, consequences of this which are, are very important because if man uh, really does destroy nature, then the question that and, and you're concerned about this, this is where a, a radical you know it helps fuel a radical environmentalism which actually sees the, the beauty of nature as something, as the goal of that is to preserve nature and to control, therefore, man's activity. And um, restricting him, if we acknowledge his presence at all, to a very small part of it, uh, as far as possible, um, as, as he was uh, before the modern society developed. Um, and of course, it's not coherent because most of these people don't want to abandon all the benefits of modern society, but they do want to restrict the numbers. So the question is, how do you restrict man's activity? Well, one way is to control what he does. And so much um, of uh, the modern environmental movement is really trying to control man's activity by restricting economic activity. Mm. Um, because it's seen that, that inevitably this will be in conflict with nature. Um, and the second is to control the number of people. And so you get the, 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 uh, the, some people in the West pushing contraception onto the developing world, for example. The assumption is there are just too many people that we will destroy it. Um, and all of this, and now there are other aspects to this worldview that, that, that um, it's, it's multifaceted, um, but nevertheless, I think so much that drives this at a gut level, an intuitive level, is the ugliness of man's activity. And I think the great mission for Christians is to uh, develop 
in, in modern terms an environmentalism that um, meets the needs of modern society uh, in terms of the need for food, for e expansion of the population, which I would say is a good thing, but at the same time demonstrates that man can do it, man can work in harmony with nature. And I think only the Christian faith offers the opportunity to do that. Yeah, you're right. For the Christian, man is meant to cultivate the world, or large parts of it at least. And if he does so well, he elevates its beauty because he raises it up to what it was meant to be. So farmland is more beautiful than wilderness, and a garden grown for the contemplation of beauty is more beautiful than farmland. It makes me think of the distinction between dominion, which we see the, that word showing up very early on in Scripture in the book of Genesis, that a man you know, is tasked with, with dominion or stewardship over creation as opposed to domination, uh, this idea of factory farming or industrial agriculture maybe swinging from stewardship into just trying to you know, extract through maximum force or uh, technology. The, maybe, maybe technology does have an important role in that kind of cultivation as opposed to uh, domination. But yeah, what, what do you think might be some of the contours of uh, a new ecological understanding and what role might it put on things that are maybe from an environmentalist perspective superfluous? There's another kind of a flower, I don't know if superfluous, <laughs> no, that's probably not. If, if, if we get the beauty component right, then it seems like a lot of the other uh, aspects of it might fall into place more readily. Well, I, I think so. Um, I would make a similar argument, and, and it's hypothesis at this stage, um, so it's, it's, it's hypothetical, but we can always try things out and look for evidence to support this. But um, I would say that just as the medieval cathedral builder had this firm belief that the most beautiful, uh, the authentically beautiful cathedral was also the most structurally sound mm. and was also the most suited to its purpose of housing the worship of God. And so my feeling is that the same argument would, uh, would work in, with farming, for example, that actually uh, the, the best farming, the most productive, certainly in the long run, uh, mm -hmm. but I would say very likely in the short as well, um, that is most likely to provide the food we need as a population grows, um, is that which is beautiful as well. It's an outward sign in some way of uh, harmonious farming. Uh, one thing that is interesting um, is that it seems to me that, uh, again, efforts to control this centrally, uh, going back to a, the, a, a past podcast where we talked about emergence and how um, there is this uh, desire to control man's activity centrally. Uh, and again, I think in the context of farming, this would not work. Um, so subsidies usually are the way that we control farmers' activities. Mm. And my perception is that these are disastrous in terms of food production, the livelihoods of farmers, um, and they really don't work at all. Uh, the people, of course, once they're in, that politically they're very mm. popular with certain groups and very difficult to remove. Um, but 
What is interesting is, for example, um, the little bit I know, and I, I may, my perception may be wrong here, but I look at the. I used to live in New Hampshire, and the state next to us was Vermont, which um, has beautiful countryside. And the, it's beautifully I think it's dairy farms. Well, it is, and it reminds me in some ways of England. It, it is the sort of archetypal farmed New England yeah. state. Um, now, what the, my perception of what happened here is that you started to get in the 30s uh, massive subsidies for farmers um, and you get huge factory farms developing as a result of this that would put small farmers out of business. Mm-hmm. Vermont decided that they didn't want this to happen. And so what they did is that they couldn't resist the... The, they couldn't do anything about the subsidies because these were federally done and mm-hmm. certainly out of their control. So what they did was introduce um, an internal set of counter-subsidies mm-hmm. in which they subsidised their own farmers. Um, as a result, what happened is you had the continuation, of, uh, in some form at least, of these small farms, and then you, they started to find their niche market in these specialised cheeses, for example. Um, and started to make money. Now, uh, what that has done is is to preserve the the nature of the countryside there. You have a lot of small farms. Uh, The person, if if only because the farmer who farms it has to live there and is more inclined to make it look good and keep it, even to keep it tidy, it's going to to have an effect. Um, But um, letting people choose to do what they want to seems to be although we want to control it actually seems to be what works best Mm -hmm. Um, now i would say that it's a shame that you have to have double sets of subsidies in order to create this this thing that actually the 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 way that would work best is to have none and then the vermont farmers could have just happily continued and the kansas farmers uh, growing corn could actually grow whatever's needed and be responsive far more to the market and that would make Kansas a more beautiful place as well. I, I'm using Kansas as the sort of right. midwestern place where you have these m- large farms, a sort of representative state if you like. Um, and so I think the economics of it does does have an impact but my feeling is that in farming and gardening as in all aspects of the culture, as far as possible you want to give people freedom and then inform it with faith. Okay. You mentioned also uh, Leo XIII uh, in his encyclical Rerum Novarum, where he writes that men uh, should be encouraged in, in the, all of humanity, just to be clear. Uh, gardening is not a, you're saying it's not an exclusively feminine uh, activity, as some people might think in, in modern America, but. Um, it's not exclusively male either. Not exclusively male either. <laughs> Should be encouraged. Um, humanity should be encouraged to cultivate the land, and uh, you say that you've heard this used as an argument by certain Catholic academics to support this idea that uh, we all ought to be doing the kind of backyard homesteading, keeping chickens and bees, growing vegetables. Um, what do you think is mistaken in that view? Well, the first of all, let's look at what Leo the Thirteenth said in Rerum Novarum, which comes from. The late 19th century, and we, we've referred to it a few times in these podcasts. It's the one that 
uh, elevated a particular aspect of Catholic morality to its own field in a way, uh, mm -hmm. Catholic social teaching. Um, and what he said was that, um, that Leo says that in cultivating the land, man will learn to love the very soil that yields in response to labor of their hands, not only food to eat, but an abundance, and I've italicized this last part, but an abundance of good things for themselves and those who are dear to them. So he's saying not only things to eat. So what else could you grow if not things to eat, but things for beauty? Mm. So he's saying both. So that doesn't rule out chickens and vegetables. Um, but I would say that I don't see and have any problem in saying that actually I'm not a specialist rearer of chickens. I don't do it very well. Um, and I'm very happy to go down to the local supermarket and buy from those who are indirectly through the chain of, uh, of the market. And I just go down to the store and buy one. Um, but uh, what I can do is make the environment in which I live, just even if it's a window box or a balcony, or as we have here where we're sitting, a little courtyard. And this, this is a, a convent building where we live and work. And um, so the, the, it does have um, a, a sort of cloistered garden. And it took a bit of persuasion for me to get everybody on board with this. But we now try and make it into... Uh, a, a courtyard that has beauty um, and so I put there's a, there's a statue of Mary in here and I've got icons um, but the idea is to as best I can and I'm not a specialist gardener but I've got a vision in my mind of somewhere which is contemplative and beautiful and so I don't think it needs um, people to have to have uh, four acres of land and a cow for example which is the sort of G.K. Chesterton, yes, which distributist he, slogan. Exactly, which he picked up from the uh, British agrarian movement that preceded him, actually. He didn't originate that. Uh, but the idea that, every, that everybody needs to get back to the land and therefore they should be growing their own food. And I don't think that's necessary. I, believe, I think that, for one, I don't want to have a cow. I don't want to farm. Uh, I would be happy to live on a beautiful farm as long as there's shops nearby and somebody else is doing the farming. Um, but I do. I want a place of beauty. But I do what I do, and I love doing it. And I've got certain specialist skills that uh, earn me a, a crust, as they say. Um, but um, I do think that it's important for everybody to have that experience of growing and cultivating, even if it's just flowers in pots, um, mm -hmm. and have the the opportunity then to enjoy it. Now, I'm not against just before because I know. You have your own business, which we, we can actually advertise on oh, here. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm rolling up my sleeves and getting up. Uh, <laughs> no. Which is very East Bay. It's funny, the East Bay hippies um, did this as well. Um, but your business is the Funky Chicken Coop. Have I got that right? Well, I've, I've built a, a chicken coop uh, for for my sister and, uh, and, and helped out with another one. I wouldn't quite call it a business, but... Uh, <laughs> It could be in the the future that okay. this will be more of a you know a model where people who uh, it doesn't take much time to reap the the harvest of of a chicken coop the upfront cost is pretty minimal and you could actually make back your investment if you eat eggs regularly within a year or so so there's my mini pitch 
<laughs> but uh, and they are really funky chicken coops. I've seen them; they're fantastic. So it's at that sort of and funky. I mean, it suggests that you're thinking about the look of them. So my point is that if you enjoy that and get pleasure from it, then that's that's fine as well. Um, but there's there's no there's no need for everybody to be growing their own food if they don't want to do it. Specialization is a great thing which benefits society. Uh, but I would encourage people to have the pleasure of enjoying the cultivation and growing of, of plants mm. in some form for the beauty of it, as much as for what you the rewards you reap. The other thing is um, that is interesting, as you know, I, I love going walking, and one of the reasons I love this area is that um, there are lots of open spaces on a farmland where there are footpaths across the farmland. And actually, this is the... Uh, the sort of scenery that I enjoy. By the way, I'm not anti-wilderness. The wilderness is beautiful too, mm -hmm. but I think you know, the, it just has a few more demons than. Uh, than uh, yes, uh, yeah. I, so I watch out for uh, bees. Well, no, I should. That's right. Use, so I go go with my crucifix and the Jesus prayer, and I. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> but I, even the wilderness, as he says, he pointed out, scorpions, snakes. The wilderness we go to is man-tamed. I mean, it's. We're protected against the uh, all the things that can destroy us mm. um, nowadays. Um, but um, I, when I go, I used to love going hiking in England, and we go across the farmland and um, enjoy seeing the farm animals um, because there's public right of way. And I remember that when I had um, particularly American American visitors who used to visit me when I was living in England. I'd always make a point of going for a walk um, on one, on these public footpaths in the British countryside, which is every bit as charming as the postcards that you, you see with these beautiful villages. And you can always work out a walk where it's circular and you arrange a, you, you hop from one village to another across the fields, a bit like in Jane Austen novels where they would walk to the neighbouring estate you know, and walk back again across the land. They were enjoying the man-formed rural environment. In this case, we go to the pub where they're set up now for uh, very nice lunches. And so we have this beautiful circular walk. And so I used to enjoy taking American visitors on these walks and they would always be nervous as we set off uh, onto the farmland and worry about who owned it and were they trespassing and what was the situation here? And I say, no, no, we have right of way that the farmer is not allowed to um, to stop us going on to this to this land. Uh, we ought to respect it. Um, when, when we're not allowed to run wild here, we stick to the path and we respect it. But this works well uh, because in the end, um, it allows the farmers to get political support for farming as they do because people enjoy the beauty of the land they have. And so I don't feel, in Britain, I never felt this frustration of being penned into the city. You can get out into farmland. You don't have to own countryside in order to, to experience it. Um, and it's part of the, and incidentally, this idea of the public right of way um, is something that goes right the way back to medieval times in which landowners um, used to give uh, 
the peasants plots of land in exchange for a tithe. So, and so they build the tithe barn, um, and the peasant would farm his strip of land and then give a tenth of it to the landlord, the, 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 the lord of the manor. Um, now, the problem was that very often this strip of land would be slap bang in the middle of the, the land that was owned by the same person um, or was being tenant farmed by somebody else. And so the question was, how did he get to the, that place without trespassing? So they developed this idea of paths that, where, the, where they had right of way across farmland. And it's an example of the old idea of the noblesse oblige or what you might call the responsibility that goes with privilege, that mm. the, the people who own the land could probably have enforced the uh, people to go off, but they understood that um, one of the privileges of owning it was allowing people to have this access. And that the network of public footpaths in Britain is actually a hangover from this network of footpaths that took people to their strip of land. And now, it doesn't exist in the same way in the US. You tend to have state parks and national parks which are set aside for footpaths, but they're not farmed. So mm -hmm. you're walking through wilderness, which can be beautiful, but um, it, it has a particular look to it. Um, unusually, around here in the East Bay, um, you have movements to try and preserve farmland as well as some natural um, wilderness. Um, but uh, you get trusts um, buying up farmland and then letting it to farmers um, on the condition that there are footpaths going across it. And so in, the, in California, uh, we have an example of the left-wing hippies, if you like, working in harmony with the uh, some with Christian ideals mm -hmm. and, and in sort of meeting together in ways that you don't imagine. And so around here, uh, we have uh, lots of beautiful areas to walk through man-cultivated areas, which are beautiful. They're, 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 it's dairy farms very often that, that we go and see. Um, and um, this gives me that experience um, and, and opportunity to enjoy the beauty of land being cultivated, I believe, in the way that Leo XIII envisions. Yeah. Uh, the one line that I maybe took issue with in this post was about, okay. uh, in, in reference to not everyone needing to cultivate the land for, for food or do the, the backyard homesteading type of thing, uh, you say that you, know, you don't see the point when you can go to the grocery store and basically get these things for, uh, for a pittance. Uh, but I think that one of the problems that, that I have, and I'm very much you know, guilty as anyone else uh, of, of reaping the benefits of cheap industrial agriculture, but I do think that a lot of the, the, the cost of food ends up being hidden elsewhere in the, in the supply chain, or it, it's a postponed cost if we're degrading the soil uh, so some of the some of the cheapness of, of food not not only comes from the subsidies, but um, but from this kind of borrowing against the the, the future, and and Pope Leo the Thirteenth writes something about uh, that we need to learn to love the soil that yields in response to the labor of their hands, not only food to eat but an abundance of good things for themselves 
and those that are dear to them. So I think that this is just something to, to highlight that um, you know we don't want to get too comfortable with the status quo. And what I hear you saying is that we need you know we might want to move more towards uh, a kind of farming, a new kind of farming. Certainly, um, <clears throat> I. And it doesn't have to be everyone. Maybe it's as it was you know 80 years ago. There there were something like. 10% of the population was farmers. If you go back 100 years, it was 40%. And yeah. if you come to the present, it's like 1% or 2%. So maybe you know, maybe going back to that 10% of people as farmers, or who, know, who knows maybe, the number? Maybe, or it might be that modern technology allows fewer people to mm. farm. Um, or, but, uh, and you have a lot of very small farms rather than v large farms employing large numbers of low-level workers. I don't, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know how it would develop. Um, it's, it's a move forward rather than a move back. And right. so we're, in, we're moving into a different, into the future rather than the past, yeah. in what you're describing with my response. <clears throat> but I do take your point that, uh, th that what we have now in the farming world needs to be changed. There's, there's, there are problems with the way it's funded, the impact it has on food production, as well as the beauty of the environment, and I th and um, I, I think that so much of this is skewed by the subsidies that are, are given. Um, also, it, things like, for example, in America particularly, people talk about um, the worry of the chemicals, the steroids. I think it is in meat or something. You you, you hear a lot of. The, about the quality of the food and the produce, produce. Right. And for, for yeah. vegetables, it's the you know glyphosate and pesticides. Sure. Things that they spray to, to kind of eliminate any uh, you know things that, that are maybe naturally occurring, but uh, that that hinder maximum production. Right. Now, um, <clears throat> the I, I think that that's less of a problem in Europe. I think. Um, they banned a lot of that. Okay, so I, I, it's a different problem, but that is a legitimate concern. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, the, um, I think that the answer lies in allowing the farming industry to do what it does best, and then in the end, what um, is happening, even in the U.S., where these things are still legal, is that you're getting certainly in this area, you're getting the development of farmers markets. Um, people are seeking out locally produced stuff that doesn't have this, and you're getting a a, a, a small um, local farming economy. Um, now, actually, I don't see why that couldn't be more prevalent and probably would thrive much more happily um, if these subsidies, which you say, it, everybody's paying for this, whether they want to or not. It's not the food is is cheap. You're paying for the food plus your, tax, your taxes, mm -hmm. so you don't even know really what you're paying for food. Um, where, but in fact, I, th I have a suspicion that food prices would come down, the variety would increase, and the quality would increase if we allowed people to do what they do best and people became aware of what it was they were buying. Yeah. Um, and now, how you deal with that in the here and now, it may be that actually I should be less flippant about people growing chickens in the backyard. Uh, you, you, I think it's a strong argument, the one you made. Well, I think the uh, argument, the best argument for that kind of a 
distributist movement that is actively encouraging people at a local level to get get these kinds of things going and it does take you know a little bit of extra effort you know if you're if you're you you walking your backyard to check the egg basket is in theory at least easier than going to the supermarket but we're conditioned by these habits uh, and and so much of it I think maybe can't even be blamed exclusively on subsidies but just on this kind of inertia to um, to you know go and and swipe the credit card for for whatever we need um, the other the other thing going beyond um, just kind of gardening and fruit and vegetable production, talking about ranching and meat production, there is a lot of discussion around whether or not you can raise meat in a way that is environmentally friendly, uh, that's you know good for the soil, that could actually regenerate the soil as opposed to uh, just take up land and end up you know, emitting a lot of uh, methane from the, the animals when they from their from their gas from their digestion um, and this is this is an area where I'm particularly interested uh, there, there's a movement around mainly um, well it's good it's a global movement of looking at how we can graze livestock in a way that mimics the uh, the, the kind of ancient pattern of uh, prehistoric patterns of uh, of, of large herds of herbivores that would go around and in, in uh, grazing on the grasslands they would they're part of that ecosystem and so we can't go back to that we're not going to bring back the the massive buffalo plain necessarily maybe we, maybe we could but uh, these ideas I think that it it's not the primitive uh, conception of, of man but it's taking an idea that things were once in a certain kind of balance and that uh, we can restore a, a, a new kind of um, symbiosis between the animals, the soil, uh, and our own bodies. If we're, if we're raising animals in a healthier way, then the, the quality of that food will be healthier for us. Right, I, and I would be in favor of all of that sort of thing, as long as it's not driven by this and you're saying it isn't, mm. in your case anyway, uh, this idea that we just want to go back to prehistoric man. We do this, man has an intelligence, he yeah. can analyse, he can improve, he can develop. It's, it's and, the difference between yeah. hunter-gathering and uh, active management. The, the systems yes. have been called holistic land management, and okay. it takes a bit of extra planning, but it is trying to look at um, you know, in order to, if you're, if you're going to a, a village in Africa, um, it's figuring out, you know, how does this actually fit in with the way that people are currently living their lives, right. not just kind of bulldozing it in favor of some industrial system. And while I like the sound of it, um, ultimately I would say that unless that worldview is informed by the Christian understanding mm. of what this harmony is, yeah. It, it will it will create unf other unforeseen problems. I mean, all things do anyway, there are, because nobody's perfect. So there will be unforeseen consequences. Right. But nevertheless, um, we're more likely to move to that ideal just if we're inspired by, if nothing else, the fact that, that, that we are Christian and we're, we're aiming, we have an understanding in the Christian sense of what we're aiming for. Um, if it's, uh, because what tends to happen it, 
um, without the Christian understanding of this is that people are not moving towards some future ideal, which is what Christians are doing. They're moving back to a previous uh, ideal, a, a sort of historical utopia, which never really existed. Um, and so it, it won't work. They'll be thinking that it, it'll, it'll re if, it, if they do it well, it'll recreate problems that people were striving to get away from at the time. There are reasons why they did they changed what they were doing because right. there were problems then. Right. And that, so we have to have this attitude as the Christian that, that, that's teleological. In other words, what is our purpose on earth? Um, and ultimately, it's to go to heaven <laughs> and yeah. and uh, to work with all the goods that God has given us towards that end and, and in the process to raise everything up. Um, th th there is a large overlap, but I think, I think that the, the role for Christians is to inform people as to how that can be done. And the greatest, the, the greatest persuasion, I would say, is to do it successfully. It's not just to produce the hypothesis, as I have done, is for some people who understand what I've said maybe um, and then go and put it into practice in a way that is distinctive but nevertheless will appeal to those people who are seeking what you describe right. but don't have the Christian understanding. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I was in Ireland uh, last year learning that a lot of the small farms are run by people who do it as a little bit of a side income. It's not their, their main thing but... That was just interesting to me as you know, people are going back to it, not necessarily out of economic necessity, but as a little bit of a lifestyle yeah. decision. And it, it, it gives pleasure. It, it, it's an important part. I think what the point that Leo is making is, is it's natural to man to want to do this. And so wherever you are, I'd say do it. Um, mm. But it doesn't need to be three acres and a cow. That's the thing. That, there are degrees in which you can do it. We don't need mass redistribution of land necessarily. Uh, well, we, that's we, the template. Three yeah. acres and a cow is a good template. We can, <laughs> we can modify that, but no. Uh, no, I, I agree that... Although, please give me three acres of prime real estate in the East Bay. And I'll, I'll take the cow. I'll make good use of it. <laughs> yeah. I'll take the cow for our, our small backyard. Um, we're coming to the end, but I wanted to close with a reflection on the feminization, the modern feminization of flower gardening. Um, you make a connection between that and the feminization of prayer and contemplation. I'm curious, first of all, what you mean by the feminization of prayer and contemplation um, and what you think that the, the broader consequences of this are. And then lastly, what you think the antidote is. Well, it's uh, something that is often said, not just by me, that, that we have a, a problem in the church that's that really it's receiving from society as a whole in that there's a crisis of masculinity um, and in seeking to offer in the wider society at any rate um, greater dignity I believe that, that, that that's at the root of the feminist movement the, I, I don't believe women had nothing uh, historically but I think a lot of the new freedoms that women have is a, are a good thing. Um, so there's an increase in dignity there. Uh, but what seems to have happened is that it's, it, it's become one that does so at the expense of masculine dignity. That, is, that to be naturally masculine 
is not necessarily seen as a good thing. Mm. Then what happens, and so you start to get um, a sentimentality um, developing within the, the way that the church's liturgy develops. It, it seems to appeal to more to women than men. If you just go and look at, at, at a church, there are more women than men mm-hmm. in there. Uh, boys particularly feel really embarrassed at, at, at what's going on. Teenage boys will not, as soon as you give them the chance, most flee uh, because their instincts are that there's something that is, you know, this is not going to, uh, I, d- I just don't want to be here. This feels mm. sissy, it feels childish, I don't know why it is. And it, it's to do with the forms and the nature of uh, the sentimental nature. Um, now, I think a lot of women feel this too, uh, but it seems that um, more women prefer that than men, um, or at least they're more tolerant of it than men. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I can just give a personal sense of this. So, for example, devotion to Mary. We've talked about this, and I think maybe next um, next time we will discuss this um, with Rachel Fulton Brown. Um, if that comes off with keeping your fingers crossed, um, who's an expert on medieval devotion to Mary. But when I, as a convert, I really struggled with Catholic devotion to Mary. I hated the Louis de Montfort-derived meditations and prayers. Mm. Um, all the uh, books about the, the mysteries of the rosary, for example, had this horrible emotional language which I really couldn't bear. And to this day, it means I never really got on with the rosary, actually, mm. because I just can't, I always bring to mind this flowery language that um, just it seems to be trying to generate my emotions. Um, and again, it's just a remark, and I may, it, maybe I'm wrong in this observation, it's just at a personal level, that uh, I think men find it that more difficult to deal with than women. Uh, maybe it is that not that women are more tolerant of this. I don't know, um, but that that's my sense of this, and I'm not the only one to remark on this. Um, and so, uh, with regard to devotion to Mary, it's one of the reasons why I always enjoyed the approach of the Eastern Church, actually, which is uh, has a very masculine feel. Uh, uh, should we say that one that engages both men and women in their mm-hmm. liturgy. It's not, it's not masculine to the exclusion of women at all. Um, but it allows for a, a, what just feels at a gut level. And I, if you push me to characterize it, um, I couldn't direct it. I just say it's the nature of the music, it's the way that it's done. Um, it seems to be, the language seems to be much less flowery and emotional, much more deeper theologically. Um, and the music and the expressions of it are done through the liturgy, through the, the feasts of Mary, um, and even the, the icons have um, a much more, uh, much less sentimental feel to it. It's not you never call a Russian icon kitschy, for example. Mm. It, it just, um, and so I just feel more comfortable with that style of devotion to Mary. It's interesting that um, Paul VI wrote a. Uh, a an exhortation on devotion to Mary in which he emphasized the importance of doing it through the liturgical patterns. He did talk about the rosary as well, but he he made it less than the mass and the liturgy of the hours, actually. Um, now, um, something that 
see, I, I've noticed, again, this is just anecdotal. So people feel free, if you're offended by this, you think I'm wildly wrong, I may be, but it, so it's just anecdotal. But especially in America, there is this sense I get that people feel that, that men feel that flowers are sissy um, and that, you know, you roll up your sleeves and you do something solid and uh, if you have a yard, even the use of the word yard in, a, in the American language mm. vernacular rather than garden is interesting, I think. Um, but when you mention a garden, automatically it means vegetables in, in Americans' minds. They don't think of flowers. Um, and it's, I remember one person saying to me that he just thought, well, because we I was going to address a class of high school boys about growing a garden. He said, well, they're not going to be interested in that. I mean, that's sissy. They're not going to be interested in flowers. Um, and so I just feel that there is this feeling that beauty and contemplation um, somehow is not masculine um, and that somehow they're connected. I, I can't speak to, to a gr it in greater depth than that. I have to mm. think about it, I think. Okay. Uh, but... Uh, I certainly believe, just going back to the Song of Songs, that, it, that what is interesting is that the man um, gathers these flowers for his beloved, and it's seen as a masculine thing. He, he must choose them for his beauty. He must appreciate the beauty of them to, to liken them to the beauty of his beloved. Um, he must understand this. Mm. Um, and so I think that it's important that... Uh, I, I, that all of this is developed for both men and women. And I'm really just speculating. I was throwing that line in there, but I thought maybe this was at the root of it. Okay, and the uh, solution or the, uh, the, the antidote to the over-feminization? Of... Uh, well, this is something I think that we'll talk of in the future, but um, I think it is in the forms of the music and, and the engagement of the way we engage with the, them in the liturgy and making the liturgy the heart of our um, personal devotion. So this means, that, for example, with Marian devotion, um, deeply engaging with the, the Marian feasts. Mm. And if you look at the antiphons, for example, um, they're all scriptural, they're deeply theological, uh, that are connected with the liturgy, the hours and the mass on that day. Um, with regard to flower gardening, I just think we need some examples of people who are prepared to do it. And then also some beautiful gardens that um, when men see them, they'll enjoy it. I mean, I, we have the... It's interesting, just the little story of trying to get this garden in the house here. Mm -hmm. um, I saw this... And it was being used at, at really almost just for storage of gardening equipment. And um, it wasn't thought of something that should be beautiful to look at. And I suggested it. And I think at the time, um, the reason I couldn't convince people is that some people just could, didn't really know what I was talking about. They, they hadn't really ever seen something of this sort. And, and they didn't really appreciate that I was talking about trying to develop this as a place of contemplation um, and um, now eventually we, we, we came together and we uh, basically they let me loose um, there's one corner which is for herbs and that, but even so it's nicely kept and then the rest um, is me developing this for flowers and it's 
as yet immature. We've got these trellises here, and we hope that the plants will climb up them, but at the moment they're just bare trellises. Uh, but my guess is that, that you know, I haven't, certainly I haven't heard anyone complain about it since we put it in, and I, that I think people appreciate once, they're, once it's in that it does affect hugely the, the sense of not just when you come out here, but the fact that we can see this from inside. We can see the garden. I think it affects the quality of life in ways that people, some people hadn't quite appreciated beforehand. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. For more information, go to thewayofbeauty.org and if you want to buy the book, go to amazon.com.
You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. For more information, go to thewayofbeauty.org. And if you want to buy the book, go to amazon.com.